Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Okay, everybody, today you are going to hear from Miss Jessica F. Uh, And I wanted to have Jessica on the program for a couple different reasons. Number one, I really enjoyed her story. Uh, And the other reason is that she has been sober since March 27th of 1979. So just to save you a little bit of math there, uh, that is almost, not quite, but almost 40 years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there, there are so many comments, questions, thoughts, ideas, considerations, things that she was told that I want you to kind of take note of when you're listening to this. But I'm going to give you a couple things that actually stood out to me. First of all, she was told, and I had never heard this phrase before, she was told that you cannot be a part-time alcoholic. Now, I've heard quotes before like, uh, um, you can't be a little bit pregnant, but I'd never heard somebody say, you can't be a part-time alcoholic. And she's going to talk about that during her episode today. She also said, Alcohol gives one the wings of an eagle and then takes away the sky. So I, once again, that was something I had just not heard before. Uh, and you know, I've been doing this a little while. And when I hear things put in a different way, um, it really kind of resonates with me. She's going to talk about her business life and success there too. How she went from having 33 cents in her pocket to becoming a vice president in her company. Uh, she was also told by a sponsor a couple of different things. Number one, she was told by a sponsor to get the emotions out of the God concept. And I thought, well, what does that mean? So we asked some follow-up questions about that, and she dove into it a little bit further. Um, there was another thing that she mentioned during this podcast that you're going to hear, and that is that she was said, she was told when she was leaving a group once, an Alcoholics Anonymous group, and coming to another area, they told us to pack us in your heart. And that really um, that really helped her as she was moving from one group to another. And I know several people lately in our group, our home group, that have gone to another group. And I wish that I had had that in my pocket at the time to be able to say, hey, pack us in your heart when you're going from one location to another. This is kind of a tidbit that uh, I had uh, not really thought of before uh, we started recording. And uh, turns out that her sponsor actually wrote 
the May 12th edition of Daily Reflections. And for those of you who are out there and that read Daily Reflections, excuse me, Daily Reflections, I guess that's about as close as we come to fame in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? You write in the Daily Reflections and you get published there. And so anyway, uh, the last couple of things, she's going to talk about how Ogmandino, uh, that writer, uh, has had a big influence on her life in sobriety. And then the last thing is she's going to talk about the importance of attending meetings. So anyway, enjoy this episode. Episode. I sure did. Be, feel free to contact me at feedback at soberspeak.com if you have any comments. And here's Jessica. Okay, so we are sitting here, everybody, with Miss Jessica F. Can you say hello, Jessica? Hi. Hi. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you, Jessica, for coming on Sober Speak. Uh, we're glad to have you. So, um, I wanted to get Jessica on the program here. You know, a lot of the folks that I know, I know uh, that, excuse me, not that I know, but I have on the program, I've known um, pretty well throughout the years, and I know quite a bit about their story. Jessica, I know bits and pieces about her story, but uh, I'm excited to learn more about her story as we walk through the episode today. So, first thing I want to say uh, and I want Jessica to kind of uh, expand on a little bit is I know that Jessica is almost, not quite, 44 zero years sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. My goodness, Jessica, something that uh, uh, I'm sure you're grateful for. And why don't you go ahead and share about that a little bit? Yeah, um, March 27th, 1979. Wow. And um, I remember it like it was yesterday. I had a sponsor that told me, if you haven't remembered your last drunk, you haven't had it yet. <laughs> and I take that to heart. But, you know, um, I can tell you that it started out on the 26th. I can tell you that um, almost a year before that, July of 1978, um, I found myself faced with a decision I didn't like. Um, or behaviors, uh, two DWIs, uh, negligent collision. Uh, it was all an accident. You know, it was all, if this would have happened, if that would have happened. Um, the obvious, I was in a treatment center in Fort Worth, uh, actually mid-cities, called ARC, and a guy by the name of Billy Gregory and a guy by the name of Guy Woodard. And I say Billy Gregory because some of your listeners will know about there's a um, – uh, treatment center, drug treatment center in downtown Fort Worth, named after Billy Gregory. And I was um, fortunate enough to actually know Billy. Uh, and he looked at me and said, you know, absolutely nothing about alcoholism. And I thought that was, uh, at the time, I, I took that as a compliment. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'm looking around because it got, you know, to me, alcoholism was a guy under the bridge uh, with a brown paper bag, you know, drinking a bottle of Muscatel. And uh, that wasn't me. You know, how could it be? I was just somebody who had the misfortune of being uh, caught up in this, this um, uh, endless loop of misunderstanding, you know, failure to communicate. So, you know, uh, that, was, that was Texas. That was in 1978. I got uh, a double probation 
uh, through reasons that will go nameless on on the air <laughs> that you could do back then. Um, and so I I left the state. I went back home, which was South Bend, Indiana. And my friends didn't understand me. And very shortly thereafter, I ended up in a halfway house called Phoenix House. Hmm. And it was run by um, a bunch of drunks from Alcoholics Anonymous. It was in a mansion, which I liked. I liked that part. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it began a trek. Um, I had gone to AA meetings down here. I'd gone to AA meetings up there, and I wanted to find a way to drink without getting in trouble. And nobody here seemed to understand that. And uh, uh, so I would stay sober two months, two and a half months, and then this thing would happen inside that I had to get drunk. And, and I looked at AA as punishment. Mm -hmm. um, people would come up to me and say, oh, my God, you know, oh, how I wish I would have found AA when I was your age. And I was too chicken to say this out loud, but I'll tell you exactly what I was thinking when they were doing that. Is I was thinking, oh my God, I wish I had found AA when I was their age. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because it was a big fat gym. So, you know, I went through a whole lot of stuff um, and found myself uh, reaching a turning point. And that was March 27, 1979. I didn't know it was going to work, but I knew that I couldn't go back out there. And you said it started on March 26. Can you yeah, talk about it? Did. March I was working, yeah, I was working in a car dealership. And, you know, I had been going to AA on and off, got kicked out of my halfway house. Uh, it was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous who was the sales manager there. And I needed a car. I mean, come on, you know. <laughs> but, but we went to lunch. Uh, you know, it's that, it's that. Uh, I was. Uh, I was using AA to not be in trouble for a while, catch my breath. And um, we went to lunch at a place that served alcohol. And I looked around at all these people. I had just turned 21 or, you know, within three months. My birthday's in December. So I just turned 22. Okay. And, and everything I had been through just kind of floats out of your mind because I saw people enjoying a cocktail or a drink at lunch. And I wanted one, so I ordered one. And, you know, I think, I don't know how many it was, but the guy I was with, who was also at the car dealership, we went back to the car dealership and immediately left the car dealership to go across the street to the pizza place where we ordered mug or schooners of, of beer, probably smoked some marijuana. I went into a blackout. Um, the reason that I know exactly, but pretty darn close to what time it was, is we ended up in a Motel 8 in on us 31 in south bend indiana and the thing that is still in my big book today says we checked in at 118 a.m mm -hmm. 27th and um like i said i was in a blackout but but i had a can of miller the gold can and the lights would from time to time in blackouts would bring me out of a blackout and in this case the light came in from the parking lot, hit that gold can. I had drank so much that day that, you know, I could slot, I could hear it. Okay. <laughs> and I say, you know, when I went to pick up the can, I just, I, and the light hit it. I said, I, I just can't drink anymore. Now what I meant was that my stomach was sloshing. And what I heard in my head was, well, it was a little stronger than this, but no kidding. 
And when I, the next morning, um, tried to go to work and, you know, I felt God awful. By then, Billy's words of, you know, nothing about alcoholism had changed. I did know about alcoholism. I did know it was disease. I did know I had it. I did know that I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I knew I was in trouble. Mm -hmm. And um, my mentor in Texas, um, when I talked to her later that day uh, to tell her that I was okay, um, said to me, she says, you know, you need to take some time and think about this because you can't be a part-time alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And with those words on my heart, uh, I went back outside of the halfway house, which was in a beautiful place in a beautiful setting. Um, and that was March 27th, 1979. And I basically had this um, meeting with God, you know, unlike anything else, because I knew by then that if I continued drinking, where it was going to end up. Um, and I wasn't that tough. And I also didn't know if AA was going to work. Um, but I heard this voice in my head that said, you know, give yourself permission to drink. Everybody else had been telling me no. And I knew in my head. Um, <clears throat> and when I did that, something broke open inside my heart. And I could give myself permission to not drink. Because it's, you know, it's, uh, no matter how badly you want to do it for other people, you can't. Mm. And it, it no longer mattered that I was 22 years old. What mattered was I knew I was going to die. And when, you know, that feeling that, that I had when alcohol gives you the wings of an eagle and then takes away the sky, mm. you know, all of that morphed into when you should have been dead and you're not. You can never be the same again. And so I, I felt perfectly normal. It wasn't, you know, had, and, I, and I've told people this, you know, had God given me a burning bush, I would have put it out thinking that it was my cigarette at the time. Okay? <laughs> you know, so he didn't. Um, I felt perfectly normal, got in a car and went to an AA meeting. But the funny thing about that was it took two years for me to realize the normalcy of the miracle was that I can't tell you the last time, if ever, up until that point, I ever felt normal. Who was that? You said, uh, I had never heard it put that way. I've heard this put in some other ways, but they said, uh, you can't be a part-time alcoholic. Yeah. Um, and, and that was exactly what my, my mentor told me, who was not in AA, by the way. Um, so that was the question that I went to think about. You can't be a part-time alcoholic. Mm -hmm. You know? And so so let's, you know, it's hard to kind of put 40 years into a thumbnail sketch, but, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I know you, you have mentioned to me that music is a passion of yours, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, talk about when you t talk about what that means to you, how it's helped you in sobriety, how it's helped mm -hmm. you in recovery you and give specific examples if you want. You know, it's, it's funny because it helped me more when I was going through the drinking, um, remember age, okay? Age at the time, I didn't have tons of life experience. There was one thing in my life growing up as a, as a, as a teenager that I did really well, and that was music. If there was any value 
in my life that I can point to without questioning the the you know the shameful behavior, the awful behavior of alcoholism, the you know the the pursuit of pleasure of the drugs and the alcohol in high school and the lack of any kind of vision and planning, it was music. So I knew I wasn't worthless. Now I left music for 30 years. Okay. Um, because what I learned in AA was that you take this program, you take these steps and see, that's the cool part about my story today. And the thumbnail sketch that I get excited about is don't look at this as a, as a punishment. These steps allow you to do anything. I became from, from having 33 cents in my pocket, you know, in getting sober with no career, no college, I became vice president of sales and was director of sales for high tech companies. And, you know, because it told me anything. And, and what they taught me was anything you really want to do, you can do and accomplish through staying sober, through sticking with these steps, and using these steps out there when you face problems. I remember how self-righteous I was and how, how my sponsors laughed at me when I came in one day and I go, people out there lie. <laughs> okay? And they don't have steps. I mean, come on. Really? You know, and, and, and you know what? It just became a series of events where I discovered my values. I discovered that, gosh, I am smart. Gosh, I can't have a job. I, I didn't know any of that. And, you know, I remember Catherine Mudkey was one of the directors of the halfway house at Phoenix house. Mm. And, you know, at the time I was still looking for shortcuts. So when she said to me, you know what I got out of Alcoholics Anonymous, the biggest thing I got, I'm thinking, whoa, all right. You know, I get cheat notes. She said to me, here's the secret, right? She said to me, she says, I can walk into any room anywhere at any time with my head up. Mm. I got to tell you something. I was a bit disappointed at the time. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking really that's it. But I got to tell you how cool that is to be able to be part of the solution, to be able to be there for people, to be able to reestablish and earn trust that I had lost, to bury two parents sober who counted on me mm. and who loved me and were proud of me. Mm-hmm. To 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 have nephews and family that never saw me drunk, mm-hmm. you know, and to live a life today where where the the main passion is that I'm a link on a chain, and and to the only way I know how to honor because the one thing I was right about about those old people telling me how good it was that I was coming in young is that they were old, mm-hmm. and they're gone. But the only way that love that that I can even attempt to scratch the surface of what they gave me is, is to, to do things like this. I'm so honored to be here today to have an opportunity to share and, and, you know, share my experience, strength and hope. And after this long, I finally figured out what the strength means. What did you do? What steps, what action did you take to stay sober? And it's not, you know, there's, there's doing the steps, but, you know, it's, it's the thinking, you know, it's the times that I always knew AA was there because I did my work. I stayed in touch with my sponsors. I went to meetings. I engaged in life. I didn't hide behind the steps. You know, all that fear I had in my first year of sobriety was all about fear. 
you know, but I hung around long enough to hear people like Florence Dale from El Paso tell me one time, she says, you know, you got to get your emotions out of your God concept. Where can you go to get that kind of stuff? She said, you need to get the emotions Emotion out, of out of my God concept. Okay. So help me with that. What does that mean? Oh, well, I was having trouble. Right? How do you get this relationship with God when you grew up thinking he was this omnipotent? Right? Because, you know, at first it's shame. How can God possibly care about me because I haven't cared about him and look at my actions. But then you, you kind of stay with it. And now I'm sober a bit, right? And I still forget to go to God or I have this relationship that was more like I felt like I was going to the principal's office. <laughs> <laughs> so I was always like, oh, my God. So and she told me, she said, you know what? You got to get your emotions out of your God concept. You wake up in a good mood. God's cool. You wake up in a bad mood and he becomes a judge. <laughs> I, God is. God is. You're the one that's flipping up and down. That's okay? vacillating back and forth. Right? Mm -hmm. So once I realized that I could put a stake in the ground and God is. No matter what I thought, mm -hmm. it's a game changer. You talked about your love for AA before yeah. we got on the um, podcast, before we uh, started recording. And so talk to me about how that love developed, uh, uh, what it means today, uh, where it's taken you. You know, when I talk, um, and, and I tell people that they can't see it, but there's at least 200 people with me because I still see the names <clears throat> and the faces and the phrases of the people around the tables. You know, they're not going to be here forever. They're not. And um, the tidbits they give you come up at the strangest times. Uh, my sponsor, Barb, told me one time when I was getting ready to move back from South Bend, to here to Texas, nine months sober. She says, you know, don't forget, you got everything packed. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She goes, no, 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 I mean in your heart. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she says, pack us in your heart. I don't know if I'm going to be able to actually get through this. So I'm, and uh, pack us in your heart. She says, and, and when, when you're wondering what would say, and we're not there, take us out. And that love you feel and, and, and have a conversation with us. What would we say? And, you know, uh, I did that. You know, I did that. And I do that today because those people loved me, believed in me when I didn't love myself or believe in myself. Um, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. I wouldn't have the confidence. Um, I am. I, I don't know where I separate Alcoholics Anonymous from me. Yeah, I was, I was 22. I didn't even have a job. I didn't know where I was going. I was dying. These people that I actually trusted with my life never let me down. Because, you know, they didn't want anything from me. And, and I feel such a tremendous amount of love for them. Um, and the only way I know how to do that is, is, is to keep on keeping on. That conversation happened quite some time ago, but you can tell that it still strikes an emotional chord with you. How Very long much. ago was that conversation? 
1980, probably, when I moved back to Texas. Wow. So, yeah. yeah, it's amazing the things we carry in our heart for so long, and you never know exactly what's going to stick with you, huh, Jessica? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I was at the last state conference, and oh. I had a moment. Yeah, I probably missed you there. Right? Yeah, we were, I was there. <laughs> okay. Well, I went into the archives room, okay? Mm-hmm, yeah. Which I'm not. I'm not sure I'm going to do much anymore. But you know, because I'm still considerably younger than other people celebrating 39 and 40 years, and I well, I revel in that. Okay, <laughs> you know, there's no cane. There's hardly any gray hair. I'm good with it still. But but um, but I went in there, and and I I think it was the element of surprise. Um, David Aronofsky's um, big book and his leather cover was in a, in a glass case. Right. And for those, I mean, we have people listening in 40 countries throughout the world. Explain to them a little bit about David A. and who he is. I met David in 1979. And David was on the board of trustees, I believe, for years of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, He was a member of Preston Group. He used to be a dentist. And I can't get into his story, but I would, it seemed like I would always give the steps over at Mid-Cities. either right before or after November when David always came to do the tradition. So, so David and I, the first time I met him, he was the speaker up at a five state conference in Indiana. <laughs> then I come back to Texas at nine months sober. I walk in and he's given the traditions at mid cities. Okay. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, well, David's the kind of guy that would look at you and go, Hey, Hey, yo, 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 yo. <laughs> Alatine, it's down the hall, you know, <laughs> and and so I had that kind of relationship with David, okay, because he would just jazz me about my age, and he was just that kind of guy. Seeing that, um, I guess I, you know, a, a bit of the shock of going to, you know, I knew David, right? Billy Gregory's got a treatment center named after him, and I knew Billy, you know, um, and and a lot of that is is there's a sense of legacy now. You know, there's a sense of legacy. And, and I, I run into people all the time that go, oh, yeah, you remember the old alpha group. And then we, then we talk about, you know, this group, how it morphed into that group. And then, you know, Lemon Betty had this argument and it became Trinity Group. And, you know, I, I mean, I have all that history in my head. I thought it was worthless and probably still is. So <laughs> sorry, sorry for that tangent because people are going, I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> Yeah. And just to kind of explain it a little bit for those who are not in this area, David was a uh, kind of a, I don't know, an AA sort of legend, so to speak, oh, here yeah. in this area, right? He was very well known, very active. He carried the message like relentlessly. And all those groups that Jessica is referring to are is kind of the, the history of AA in Dallas, so to speak. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I'm, I have heard you talk about another subject before, and that subject is um, uh, emotional sobriety. And uh, I believe that's something that's kind of near and dear to your heart, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and you know, sobriety and emotional sobriety are things that are talked about in AA. One is definitely definable, right? I mean, either I've had a drink today or I haven't. Emotional sobriety is a little bit more subjective, but talk about your uh, perception, if you will, of emotional sobriety and what it means to you in your life. Sure. Um, And I think that's a great question, actually. Um, 
you know, we're living in a time where 39 years, you know, is, is in, in some circles, not that much. Okay. Cause I know people with 54, 60, some years, um, which is, is incredible to me. There's a huge difference of what happens um, that, and, and it has to do with some humility, uh, you know, going to meetings, remembering who I am, um, emotional sobriety keeps me focused on the fact that, you know, I'm still not God. Okay. I still don't know all the answers. I'm living a life and the biggest problems that I get into is surely by now, God would expect me to handle a few things. Okay? <laughs> and, uh, and, and then things go and I'm, you know, on the beam, off the beam. Well, you know, you need to walk the walk. You know, uh, and, and my sponsor, actually, she, oh gosh, May 12th in the Reflections, Daily Reflections, she actually wrote. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And, and. <clears throat> What's the title of it? Do you remember? No. Oh, gosh. Oh, she gosh, hears I this. I'm going to get, but thank you. Off guard. That. But <laughs> point being is, is that when I talk to her, okay, she says, well, are you doing the seven step prayer? Oh gosh, that hadn't occurred to me, right? So I, yeah. It, it, hey, listen, we forget to, that we got here by taking out, you know, the trash and doing the dishes. Okay, just because we have some length of time of sobriety, it makes a big difference of what kind of person I am, my serenity level, my expectations, my joy in the journey, my oh yeah, this is one day at a time. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I don't need to project out. I don't need to catastrophize. I need to quiet the noise inside my head because I know that the number one enemy is self-sabotaging dialogue. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's all to do with how I then greet you, how I then feel during the day, how I look in the Catherine Mudkey. Okay. This is the stuff. Emotional sobriety is the stuff that I walk today so that I can walk into any room, anywhere, at any time with my head up and feel good about myself. You know, I've battled anxiety, free-floating anxiety and depression throughout my sobriety, and I know a lot of other people with long-term sobriety have. The only way I can do this is by remembering and using the third-step prayer, the seventh-step prayer. 10, 11, and 12, redoing the steps in not a punitive way, but an art form, okay? Mm -hmm. And, and it, becomes, it becomes worth it to me because I know the difference between having a scratchy day and going, you know what? I didn't do too bad. I remembered who the boss was. <laughs> and I, re I remember that my desire today is to serve other people. Because, see, I'm still by myself as bankrupt as I was when I walked in. We try to, you know, and, and I'm miserable when I gather rights and think that I have rights. I, I don't. I, I'm here. My will, my life, my, you know, my way got me in trouble. It almost, it, it would kill me. I like how you said that. Like, I'm miserable when I gather rights. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's what yeah. I'm going at the day is going throughout the day just trying to gather my rights. That's right. Yeah. How dare you do this? Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I <laughs> and I disconnect with people. And it's and it's that feeling of love and from my heart that matters the most to me. 
So emotional sobriety, doing the meditation, doing the prayer, doing, you know, staying in touch, staying in meetings, listening, helping without trying to fix. So that just kind of, uh, I think you just answered what I had as a follow-up question. And that is you talked about the, um, I guess the self-talk, which I think everybody or most everybody can relate to the sabotaging type of self-talk. And so my follow-up question was going to be really, you know, so how do we alter that path with our own self-talk and the the sabotaging type of self-talk that we do have? Well, we're getting in our own way. Okay. You know, and, and here's the thing. I, I really believe that the highest value is an intrinsic value of what other people okay and i think that less than that is what i think my thoughts about thinking okay so when my thoughts about thinking like i think you should move i think you should drive faster i think okay nobody heard me right it all happened in my head (laughs) but all of a sudden my adrenaline my cortisol my oh my goodness i'm right i'm i'm like totally toast (laughs) When I back up and I realize that all human beings are powerful and that unless they're hiring people to get in the freeway and get in my way and just sit there, most of the people want to move faster. Okay? Mm-hmm. So then I realized that a day at a time, living right now isn't just a, a cliche. It's the only time I can control the pivotal moment at the decision time. All right, am I going to go? this way and get agitated or am I going to go this way and say, you know what, God, I am getting so agitated because I am in the middle of traffic. And it's not that I'm walking on water. It's, it's that I choose to not think ahead. I choose to get myself out of the way, just like it says in the big book into action. Okay. When you're feeling sorry for yourself, what does it say to do? It says, get into action, work with others. Even though I don't want to, I want to go over here and I want to effortlessly rethink Mm. about all of the things that were wrong. Like I came in that time and said, people lie out there. And they're like, yeah, get over it. (laughs) You know, and and like it says, facing life on life's terms. And the only way I know how to do that is by remembering the order of things. That other people are more important than what I think about other people. And that I have a God that understands me. And that if I put my, you know, I will go in the direction I face. Which way do I want to face? Do I want to go with the God is? And therefore, all right, God, you know, look, I can think about some inspirational, cool things while I'm in the car waiting in traffic. Or I can get my head screwed up by having conversations that nobody else but me has to endure. (laughs) There's a friend of mine, uh, uh, Tony D. He's actually been on this podcast before, and I've heard him say many times, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, you kind of have to shift your way of thinking. In other words, when you're in traffic, as opposed to saying, I'm stuck in traffic, you say, I am traffic. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I had a sponsor one time who's, uh, oh my goodness, he used to bring this up all the time. I hated it, but uh, I just brought it up to somebody that I sponsored yesterday. So now I'm kind of pitching it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's try, try to live your life with no preferences. <laughs> that's traffic lights, that's traffic. And I'm like, oh, that is the stupidest thing. However, like I said, I'm now pitching that. So, <laughs> so you know, I've turned it around to realize that it is my preferences 
and, and the only person that really has to endure um, the, and it's real. Listen, we are chemically capable. Our thoughts, chemically capable of releasing cortisol and adrenaline and going into this like amygdala mudslide. So we can agitate ourselves. Well, you know, we're alcoholics. We, we kind of live in that state, right? <laughs> Why do I need to keep pouring on the gas? You know? So it, it really depends. Some days I pour on the gas. Some days I'm like, and, and mostly today with the emotional sobriety, I kind of let up the gas and realize I have a choice. So I want to talk to you also about, I know that um, we've talked about this briefly before in that you found a book either before sobriety or right after you got into sobriety that is it's not AA uh, approved, but you know, people find sobriety in different ways and different things, uh, uh, in different avenues, so to speak. Talk yeah. a little bit about that book that you found and what it meant sure. to you. I was in a halfway house. Um, and I think it was my sponsor at the time because it was on the New York Times bestseller list. And it was a book by Og Mandino. Um, and the first book that I read of his was The Greatest Miracle in the World. And it talks about the fact that, you know, on the trash heap of life, alcoholism, suicide, drug addiction, um, you know, there's, there's an epidemic going on. And that people forgot just how valuable they are. And there was something called the God Memorandum in it. And then I read another book for 45 weeks, my first year of sobriety. It was called The Greatest Secret in the World, and, and that went off The Greatest Salesman in the World, um, that talked about in, in, in the world that, you know, there were some things that you could do, uh, and that is, you know, the heart, you know, persisting until you succeed, uh, taking action, you know, and, and it paralleled really well with the steps. And years later, after my career, I, I was telling about um, or doing it, I, I got a chance to meet Mandino and tell him thank you. Because he reminded me, you know, as well as AA, of the fact that I was a valuable human being, you know, and all the gifts that God gives us, the ability to see, feel, laugh, you know, all that stuff. Um, you know, and then years later, I had the opportunity of being associated with the Augmentino Leadership Institute, which uh, actually makes me cry as well. It's all become full circle to help other people with that. Full circle. Yep. That's beautiful. So glad. Talk to me a little bit about a, a, a sponsorship, what that has meant to you throughout the years, both being sponsored and sponsoring other ladies. And or you could just yeah. nowadays there's both. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, both ways, yeah. but uh, sponsoring other people, I should say. Uh, yeah. uh, what kind of experience have you had in that arena? I tell you what, my my first sponsor, who is the only, and I hate to say it this way, but she's the only one who's still alive. She's actually on the circuit. Um, and Polly, Polly P. And, um, you know, it, it's amazing. I mean, how important she became to me. I mean, I had never known love that and acceptance and, you know, do the steps. And, 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 you know, that was incredible. You know, my other sponsors that I talk about were, were so important in my life. You know, my sponsoring people, I sponsor people the way I was sponsored. Uh, that's a little bit abrupt in this day and age. If you want what I got, then you do what I did, you know? Um, and, but they were there for me. 
um, you know, 12 step calls. They took me on 12 step calls. My, you know, my sponsors watched me just kind of, you know, throw up all over you know, some 12 step people. And, um, you know, but, but their, their guidance was incredible. You know, having that one person that I could tell anything to without fear of judgment. You know, and, and I made a decision a long time ago, and, um, and that was it would do me no good to talk to my sponsor to just to, to give her my way of thinking about something. So I went out of my way to always tell, you know, my sponsors what the other person was saying in their point of view, because I really wanted to learn from their wisdom. Hmm. You know, and what they, you know, the, what they were able to show me um, was just incredible. You know, and when I sponsor people today, um, I'm not so sure that they feel that same connection. And, and you know, and, and that's making, yeah, that's none of my business, actually. I just do my best to, to try to share what was, what was shared with me because it was just so important to have somebody that I respected that I could say, tell me what you did. And like I said, if you want what I got, then you do what I did. And I went to a lot of meetings. I worked the steps. Okay, let's go. Right. You know, and, and the absence of judgment was incredible. And what about the importance of making meetings? Uh, I've oh. heard, I, you know, I don't know how to tell people, you know, I've uh, talked to so many people throughout the years and they want to sit down with me at lunch or whatever and get to know me. I'm like, well, you know, you can get to know me, but I'd rather see you in a meeting because that's where you're going to grow. Yeah, that's it. I mean, go to meetings. You know, uh, my one sponsor, I, again, you know, I, I, I live with their cliches a lot. Um, but, you know, people who go to meetings or people who don't go to meetings don't know what happens to people who don't go to meetings. <laughs> okay? And I was like, what? The point being is that when I get nuts, you know, when I get crazy, um, I go to a meeting and I get out of myself. Okay? It resets me, you know, and, and today it's like, well, you've got 39 plus years. Of, you know, it's like, I don't care. I'm nuts. All right? I'm an alcoholic, right? <laughs> I'm feeling restless, irritable and discontented and I'm pissed because I'm not getting my own way. So I go to a meeting and I get out of myself and I hear about what's going on. I hear and I see the pain. I connect with the people. We, the language of the heart happens. And all of a sudden, I'm not self-centered. I'm listening to them. Um, it's just a beautiful thing. I, you know, and they told me, they said, go to meetings until you want to go to meetings. And then go to meetings more. <laughs> and, and I did. I lived at meetings. Um, I lived at meetings because mostly that was the only place that really liked seeing me. Right. Yeah. You know? I understand that. You know, I can tell you whenever I call my sponsor, I'm having some sort of a quote issue that I need to talk about. First thing he asked me is, hold on, before we start off here, have you been going to meetings? Right. I, I just want to know if I'm working with a fully crazy person or a halfway crazy person. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't listen. You know what? Here, I, I wouldn't even dare call my sponsor about a specific problem unless I'd already gone to a meeting. <laughs> You know, because uh, I got to get my head straight. I could tell you one time he said to me, I called him with a particular issue. I'll, I'll never forget this. And uh, it was in the morning time and something was going off the rails. And he said, let's do this. You pause, go to a meeting uh, at noon 
And then you call me after you've been to the meeting. And by the time I got back to him there early that afternoon, yeah. it's amazing how things have changed and my perception has changed. Yeah. You know, I, I tell you, and, you know, but I tell new people that they need to go to meetings, right? But I also am, don't forget about, you know, the fact that they're going to have that time in their head when they're not at meetings. And I tell you what, what meetings did to me at first was it, it calmed the stuff in my head. You know, when I was at a meeting, oh my God, it was, it was some of the only time that I could relax a little bit and not have that fear, mm-hmm. you know? So at first, um, that's, that's what I got today. I, I, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I, I love, you know, there's not a bad meeting. Although I tried to contest that with my sponsor one time, <laughs> um, because I've realized now that if I'm really kind of like eh, at a meeting, it's me. And, and that's just kind of indicative of my attitude, but, uh, there's no substitute. And, you know, speaker meetings, uh, big meetings, um, you know, just closed discussions. I, I mean, they're all, they're all good. I got to think about what I can take to it as opposed to what I'm going to get out of it. And it's amazing how uh, I'll get more out of it if I think about praying for people in the, you know, and, and I am not, I, I know a guy once who said, uh, whenever I go to a meeting, I'm going for other people. And I, and I am just not that evolved yet. Uh, usually when I'm going is because I'm, you know, for selfish purposes. But like I told my kids, you know, 90% of life is just about showing up for whatever it's showing up for, whether it's class or whatever. Uh, and I know that uh, if I'll go to that meeting and sit, once I get there, the magic starts to happen. Sometimes I'll start praying for people in the meetings and I'll start thinking of others. You know, it'll kind of get me back into that groove. Yeah, you know, one of the things that just popped up is, is you know, there's periods of time. And if you look at birthday nights at groups, you'll see gaps, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, where, where somebody will be celebrating, say, like 40 years. And then it'll go automatically way down to like 20 years or in the teens. And I, I was a part of that, okay? And um, I was very involved in the Metroplex, you know, talking, you know, and being asked to speak, being asked to do the steps, running into David A. a lot. And, and you know, and, and I stopped doing that, you know, during that period of time. I was working, I was traveling, all that stuff. But I went through something else. I went through the loss of sponsors. And I think that, you know, I, and I don't know why I'm impressed to bring this up. Um, but when you lose people like that in AA, it became painful or in my own self-centeredness of going to meetings. One of the things I've woken up to is we all have a contribution to make and that I got over that, um, that absence. And, and when I came back, you know, sharing my story, part of why my outreach now is, is feeling that, you know, I do have something to contribute, you know, um, and that might sound weird to some of you sitting there with, you know, 30 days, but man, I tell you what, that 30 days is so special. Okay. It is so one day at a time. I, I, you know, in Indiana, you know, in South Bend, Indiana, where, where I, the core of my sobriety came from, it was whoever got up first that day. Mm-hmm. And since I wasn't an early riser, I always like jinxed it, right? Mm-hmm. Missed it. But um, what's important to me today is is showing up, 
you know, it is important for us to show up. It is important for us to tell our story. It is important for us to say things are going to happen to you mm-hmm. beyond anything you can even possibly think about today because of this program. Right. Hope. Hope. That's a good way to put it. It is hope. Well, Jessica, you know, we're kind of coming to the end of our time. Is there anything that you want to add on here before we uh, wrap up? Anything that's special to you? Anything that we may have missed? Uh, Usually I'll ask, you know, things like, uh, uh, you know, is there anything in particular you want to tell people who may be struggling, newcomers who may be thinking about recovery? Uh, Anything you want to add? Yeah, yeah, I'm really big right now on the fact that you know, I read ahead on the steps when I first came in mm-hmm. and I thought I knew what they meant. Give yourself a break, relax, find people that aren't intimidating, that you kind of like what they say at the meetings, get to know them. Don't be afraid reach out to us because you really are helping us, you know, as much as, as you're helping yourself, you know, it's not a death sentence. I thought it was. You know, how am I ever going to live and have fun again if I give up? The only thing that gave me any kind of peace of mind, even though I was trying to chase the peace of mind by that time it had already left. Look at these steps as the gift of freedom that they really are. Um, Not as punishment. You didn't do anything bad. You're sick. And uh, for those of you who, you know, are trudging with me that happy road of destiny, um, you know, it, I want to, you know, I want to connect. So you keep the people that with long-term sobriety, you're doing us a favor too. Um, you know, and yeah, I, I've never meant this more in my life than today is the fact that anywhere at any time, anybody reaches out to me, I want to be there. You know, uh, that's it. Much like you have reached out. And, and you've given of yourself uh, in your time uh, for this podcast, and I appreciate it. And I love the way you phrase that, by the way. Look at these steps as the gift of freedom that they really are. God bless you, Miss Jessica. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time.